Uh, well, the, one thing I wanted to do, what's up? Oh, okay. One thing I wanted to do here, just as we um, transition from that, is just to say, like, having Anthony here is, is a blessing because we have an expert in kind of these ideas that we're trying to engage in. Not all of us can become experts in everything, and so it's a blessing to have him here, to have his advice when we're interacting with different things that are going on, um, even if they're right in our neighborhood. And um, there is so much happening right now this week. Um, I was um, asked to participate in a vigil for Ariel Calhoun, who was the young lady who passed away. She was killed um, this, this last week. And um, <clears throat> even in that moment, they knew that Anthony was going to be here. They asked me to you know, say a few things about Stop the Violence, so I was able to do that and then have a moment to pray over the family, get to know um, real quickly uh, uh, Ariel's mother. And um, man, it's just, there's some serious heavy things that go along with that in the midst of a, a week filled with the, the, the actual moments of violence taking place, but then the care and the cleanup and all the different things that take place on the other side of that. And so um, it's a blessing for us to be able to stop and just pray for you. It's a blessing for us to ask God to put his, his, his mantle, his, um, uh, uh, what would you call it, uh, his anointing, but favor. On you to be able to make ways. And as we see in the Christmas story over and over, um, especially I love the way John puts it, that the light shine in the darkness so that darkness couldn't overcome it. And so it's our hope that the light shines in the darkness so powerfully in you that, or the, the light shines so powerfully in you that the darkness is afraid and flees from you. So if we could be an extension, a community that represents that, man, it's, it's powerful, it's powerful for us. So thanks again for what you're doing and thanks for being here this morning. Um, we are going to, so, so the struggle today is in the midst of these dark things going on, we're in the midst of an Advent series, and um, so what I'm going to do today is actually jump out of chronological order um, and speak to some of the things going on in the way that the Scriptures would like to inform that. And so um, as we're doing this, we're going to jump ahead to a different moment inside of the Advent, and then we're going to kind of come back to our normal, regularly scheduled program next week, and then we'll finish out with the two services um, on the 24th. Again, we want to invite you all to be here. We're going to end Advent week four on that morning, and then we're going to ask everyone to come back here again and celebrate through candle lighting and through carols and all the different things that we do here that night um, on the 24th for Christmas Eve. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I want us to understand, and we've said this before, we've said it a hundred different times, but in, in so many ways, your life history, my life history, our experiences, everything that we walk into any room with, they frame our expectation of something and whether we consider it normal or abnormal, right? I think everyone kind of get, gets that, right? And so um, if, you, uh, if you come to the Christmas dinner and, and, and the things you eat and the things you don't eat have been shaped by your history. So tell me what you eat. What's your main thing on Christmas dinner when you get together with your family? What's the thing that everything else revolves around? Ham. Ham. That's a classic one. All right. What else? Whoa. I got a pot roast and what else? Huh? Lasagna. All right. Get some lasagna. I can get down with some lasagna. What else? Mashed potato is the main thing. <laughs> gravy, no gravy. 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 All right. I didn't know there was gravy and no gravy people until I met my wife. All right. That was a, a thing. We got sushi. Woo. What? All right. Well, did you know? So growing up in like Arizona, the classic thing that is often eaten in that area is tamales. 
It's, it's a Christmas thing that you eat. And so the best tamales can be gotten in South Phoenix right before Christmas, and you load up on those things. Sometimes you freeze them so you have them two months later when you want to have tamales again. Anyone else have tamales on Christmas? No, and we got, I kind of wondered if you all would be in that category. Some of you, uh, I got asked to be at a Christmas uh, dinner one time, and they had tofurkey. Do I have any tofurkey people in here? I'm sure there's got to be some. We got one, and the, and the tofurkey was cast and molded into the shape of an actual turkey. That threw me off just a little bit. So how you celebrate, the way you celebrate, when you celebrate, all of these things are shaped by your history. And I heard someone mention this recently, that if you were to have no context and just walk into a room filled with light bulbs, blinking light bulbs, non-blinking light bulbs, different colors, that could be kind of disorienting. You could accept it. You may not. You'd be kind of thrown off if you saw an outdoor tree cut down and put inside of your house. You might be like, that's, that's a little bit strange. If you hear stories growing up of a big guy who knows when you're awake or sleeping, he knows when you're good or bad, and he's creeping down in your house chimney trying to eat your cookies and milk. If you had no context for that, it would be disturbing. But if you know Christmas it all kind of slots into place, and we don't even think twice about it. It's very familiar to us, and so it's less disorienting. It's not as disturbing, and you can accept it, and the narrative is a little bit easier to, to enter into. So I, I know we're stepping out of chronological order a little bit, but what I want us to do is step into a narrative that there's different assumptions of familiarity. And so we're going to talk about when Joseph and Jesus had to flee to Egypt. And I want you to consider, as we read the story of Joseph and Mary, their journey to Bethlehem, um, or sorry, from Bethlehem to Egypt, and a few dimensions of familiarity, familiarity. I want you to know that Mary and Joseph are incredibly, incredibly familiar with the Holy Scriptures. And so when something happens in their life, they immediately connect it to something in the Old Testament. And they're like, oh, oh, that's like what happened when Joseph had to, oh, that's what, when Moses had to, oh, that's interesting because this is just like what happened and they make those connections. They're so familiar with it. They seem to be familiar with supernatural events and acting on dreams or encounters with angels. Now, I'm not sure how many of you had a crazy dream the other night, but you most certainly probably didn't wake up and think you had an objective to accomplish because of it. But it seems assumed by multiple people in this context. And then the last one is that they seem to be familiar with violence. They seem to have a familiarity with deviant rulership, and they are expectant that their own king would have power to come against the one who is in power that they don't want there. And so those who have various levels of familiarity, both with the text, Old Testament, New Testament, supernatural violence, these are all assumed as we enter into that. And with that said, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 6 and 7, summarize a couple things, then we're going to jump down to, to uh, verse 12. So open your Bible right now, Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And we should have those. Um, I, didn't, I didn't make those direct distinctions earlier. I just said put all of chapter 2 up there. So I might summarize and jump around just so you're aware. But verse 6, it says, so we're, we're picking up after Jesus was born. In Bethlehem, there's a rule of a man, a king named Herod. The Magi have come from the east to seek out the king of the Jews and to worship him. King Herod doesn't like this because this person is a challenge to his own rulership. He doesn't want that person there. 
So he calls in all these religious officials. He wants to know exactly, where is this king going to be born? Tell me what you know. And they read him this prophecy. Verse 6 says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Right away, we have a juxtaposition of these two kings. We have these two different representations. They rule in different ways. You have King Herod. He's famous. Famous for two things. His wealth and his ability to build monuments, fortresses, and his violence. These are what he's famous for. Herod wasn't Jewish, but he was raised in a Jewish area. He was raised to know the customs of Jews, and so when he began to rule on behalf of Rome, the Jewish people were like, no, you're not legitimate. You don't represent us. You are a traitor to our people. So they didn't like him. For 20 years, you have Herod leading this cruel but structurally very successful campaign. He inherits this giant spice trade company from his dad. And, and this is what one of the quotes um, from one of the commentaries. He earned well over a hundred times the national GDP of his country. Now, I'm not an economist. I'm not, I'm not person. You know, I don't follow these things like that. But we, but we see he is so much wealthier than even his entire city. He's known for being a great builder. He established a kind of peace and a strong economic success. Um, one commentator is very specifically um, uh, a teacher in Jewish roots stuff, Ray Vanderlaan. Many of you probably heard of him. Um, he says this about King Herod and this situation. He says, in Israel, everywhere you go, you can see signs of the impact that Herod had on the world. So that's now looking at Israel. Herod desired to be the greatest man who ever lived. He took his pursuit very seriously, did everything so wildly over the top that to this day, we're not sure how he and his architects did what he did at that point in history. The list is staggering, whether the stones that we still find on the Temple Mount were giant, the sheer size of the stones, the perfection of their construction, the magnitude of the project in general, the underwater harbor poured in the self-built city of Caesarea. The construction and opulence of a famous fortress of Masada. Bethlehem also happens to be the location for one of Herod's three great palaces, the Herodium. Herod built an entire palace on top of a mountain that had to be constructed. I think we have the picture of that, yeah? I'm not sure if we got it in on time. It might be just out of order. That's all right. This is what I want you to see, because if you didn't hear me correctly, you heard that he built a fortress in a mountain. That's not what I said. Herod said, I want a mountain forest there. And they said, there's a problem, King Herod. There is no mountain there. And he said, that's not a problem for me. Build a mountain. So they built a mountain and then built a fortress in a mountain as a place for him to wage wars. So look at this thing. His construction entirely, at least for scale a little bit, you see the cars that are down there, and you can go and see this thing nowadays, and it's nearest to Bethlehem. Then in the later years, what happened is as he gets known for his wealth, as he gets known for this economy that he's building, as he gets known for the fortresses that he's building, he begins to be challenged by even his relatives, by other leaders. Political and family strife begins to build up. He even executes some of his own family members that he thinks... He doesn't know. He thinks they might rise up and try to take his place. 
small wars erupt, and so he has this paranoia problem, and then maybe at times a legitimate moments where people are competing with him for his throne. And so while all of this is happening, what we have is the king of the universe wrapping himself in flesh, born humbly in a stable in this tiny little city of Bethlehem. And we know about the character of him because we, like we talked about last week, there are clues given to us from the prophets. We know that he's going to be born of a virgin, that it's miraculous, that there is a location, but is it Bethlehem or is it Judea or, or is it Galilee or he's a man from Nazareth or is he someone who comes out of Egypt? And this is the one way, the story of Jesus is the one way all of those things could be fulfilled. He's called a wonderful counselor. Does anyone have a good counselor in their life? He's better. You still need your therapist, but he's better. Everlasting Father, Mighty God, and the Prince of what? That's right. And in the prophecy quoted here, it says that he will be a ruler who is a shepherding kind of ruler. Do you see the contrast? Do you see what we're working with here? Verse 7 goes on, it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, this is it, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Bro, you got no intentions of worshiping this baby. Now we know that, right? So he's willing to lie. Then, then we're going to jump forward. Let me give you a quick summary. The Magi find Jesus. Supernaturally, a star just stands or, or floats or whatever it is. We're not sure exactly what happened. Right above the place where he is at, and they worship him. They go on to give him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Most of us know the story. Before they leave, they are warned in a dream. Do not go back to Herod and tell him, because God knows that Herod's up to no good. They return to their country as a result in obedience by going in a different route. Pick it up in verse 13. It says this. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. Have we heard the name Joseph before? And what did they call him? Joseph, you what? You dreamer. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Have we learned of an escape involving Egypt before? Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. Yet another dream, and they respond immediately because they're familiar with the supernatural movement of God and responding to it. Verse 14 says, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Have we seen another situation where all the boys were, were being killed? Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So at this point, we see that Herod, uh, that, that Herod I just mashed those words, is paranoid. He's also got some legitimate um, people challenging his throne, which increases his paranoia. 
He's upset. He's essentially a madman, and there is evil baked into it, but he's responding in a specific way that is actually not very familiar to us in our world, right? He chooses to move towards violence. His ideology is based on conquering, control, power, violence, fear. A guy by the name of Walter Wink calls this a domination system. So Herod is just willing to go to great lengths to use the tools that all of us are familiar with in a way that would take it so far that I will do anything to establish my ability to be enthroned in this place. And so this is the story that we're told all the time since we are children. Violence is necessary to maintain control and power, and the only redemptive way to engage it is to make sure that the good guy with the power overcomes the bad guy with the power. Did not Popeye teach you this? All you need is a little bit of spinach. Use that spinach, and then the good guy has the power, and he can take out Bluto, right? I mean, G.I. Joe taught me this from a very young age. Those are my favorite shows as a kid. And the thing is, it's not the only story to be told. Let's see what happens in verse 19, and then we'll connect it back to the Old Testament and finish up. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Once again, we know Joseph, we know Egypt, we know dreamers. And said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Apparently that reputation was understood as well. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district, sorry, district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And this is where most of Jesus' ministry takes place, a ministry that is encompassed with, that is uh, filled with this idea of healing, giving eyesight to those who are blind, helping those who could not walk to walk, delivering people from demonic control so that they would feel the liberation of the Holy Spirit in their life. Miracles like bringing people back from the dead, resurrection, teaching people to love God and their neighbors. This is where this ministry took place. And when we started today, what I wanted you to see is that there are some assumptions being made in here. There is a normalization of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, supernatural and obedience to that supernatural action, and the way in which violence is interacted with inside of the Scriptures. And so Matthew is trying to make clear something to us. Every gospel has an angle. They're all coming at it with their personality, with their thing, with the stuff that they come out with. You read that genealogy and you can't help but notice that Matthew puts the most undesirable, the non-Jewish people inside of that text and shows how they're incorporated in the family line of Jesus. Why? Because Matthew is one of the undesirables. And he wants them to know that he has a place in this thing. One of the other things that he does is he's constantly connecting it to the book of Exodus over and over and over again. He's constantly talking about whether it's before the moment of slavery through the, 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 uh, the story of Joseph, whether it's during, whether it's after. What he wants us to see is that it's directly connected what Jesus is doing now to these prophetic echoes of things that have happened before. And so what he wants us to see is that there is a Pharaoh who is dominating people to build an empire 
that there were babies being killed to establish his power when they were threatened. When he feared, he enacted fear in order to keep them under control. And instead of fleeing from Egypt, they were sent to Egypt. So even that is redemptive. That, 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 listen, that this great reversal, that Egypt is the safe haven this time. Mary and Joseph have to flee to the place where their people once had to flee from in order to seek refuge from those trying to kill them. He even redeems Egypt. No one's unredeemable. Here's a side lesson. Become familiar with your text so that when these echoes happen in your life, you can go back to them and see what God's speaking to you. All right. The second thing they does is they have this supernatural element in here. You can trust the hand of God who moves in natural and supernatural ways. Like I'm not trying to diminish the natural ways God does. It's like we're we're okay at that. The material world's like something we understand. It's the supernatural things that we have to become more familiar with. And so Jesus dies, establishing this new thing that is going to be a supernatural movement of God, sending His Holy Spirit, so that you and I, all of us, would have the Holy Spirit in us. And so, in the midst of that, we have to understand that He is bringing about our uh, our good and His glory. Jesus establishes a peace. He was showing us an example when he went like a lamb before the slaughter. When he said to Peter, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And when he quietly went, not passively, but directly towards the violence because he knew that in the end, what would take place would work out for the greatest glory of God and for the people on earth. So, so what I said, if you heard me say, you're going to have an easy life if you trust the supernatural hand of God, that's not necessarily what's going to happen. Bad things happen to people all the time. Bad things happen to those who follow God. And the idea is having faith, like Jesus gave us the example to, to be obedient, knowing that it's going to work out for something that He has planned. What happens then, though? Let me, let me hit this last one. What about the violence one? We talked about the familiarity with the Old and the New Testament, the Scriptures, and what God speaks to us. We talked about relying on supernatural moves of God, but what about this violence thing that they seem to be very familiar with, kings who do this type of thing? Well, well what we see, once again, in the teachings of Jesus is that He tells us to love God and love our neighbors. What happens when you center God? When you revolve your life around being obedient to Him, what happens when you love your neighbor as yourself and that overflows into your neighborhoods and into your streets and into um, all of the, the, the world that you interact with from your jobs and all the places that you dwell throughout the week? This has the direct potential to dissolve the environment wherein people feel that they need to dominate, that they need to conquer that they need to control and resort to violence to get what they need. Now, now hear me, there are just evil things that happen. And so we go to God and war spiritually against those things. But if we have a culture of retaliation in us, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. If we have a culture that creates competition for resources, wherein people feel like they have to fight and compete and enact violence to get basic needs met, then we create a loving environment where none of that's ever necessary. We create a loving environment so that they need everything they need, even if it requires sacrifice on behalf of those who have it. This is called preemptive peacemaking. 
that we would establish a, a place so righteous, so just, so equitable, so loving that any seed of violence that tries to plant itself in that environment can't live. It doesn't have a chance to grow in the first place because no one needs to resort to it. So in the midst of this scripture, this text, the supernatural move of God, God's like, man, if you don't respond to evil with evil, we can actually change the world and make it a new place where evil never has a place to ever be planted originally. I'm going to quote Ray Vanderlaan one more time. The subversive nature of God's plan is that he will send his son to be born in the shadow of the palace of the greatest man to walk on Roman soil. There are two kingdoms that are being put on display in Matthew's gospel. One king is the richest man to ever live. He constructs incredible buildings that stagger the mind and accomplishes incredible feats of human engineering. His ingenuity and wealth are second to none. He builds mountains where there aren't any, pipes and waters, so that it can go where pla- to places where it never previously reached and corners the market on beauty and innovation. He is the most powerful human being the world has ever seen. His life is decorated with silver, gold, and the richest fare. Another king is being born to a poverty-stricken, rejected family in the rural town of Nazareth. He is born in sheep crap. That's right, Ray Vanderlaan said sheep crap. Surrounded by the ash of shepherds, fires, and the feces of cattle, his birth is announced to the marginalized of society, and his advent is celebrated by shepherds. One king is the leader of an empire, the other is the king of Shalom. And you see that the heart of Matthew's gospel is that he is telling a story comparing these two kingdoms, and we're being invited to consider our deepest assumptions, our world and what we believe to be real power, what we believe to be real wealth, what we believe to be actual security, and where that security actually comes from. what, What do I really want? What do I really strive for, empire or shalom? And let's be honest, that's hard. I'm teaching this, and I'm thinking all the ways that I want to resort to just taking control myself. All the ways in which I just want to, uh, uh, you're not working fast enough, you're not doing it the way I would do it, God, I'm going to take over. This cuts to the heart of us because it reveals to us that maybe we're relying and putting our faith in something that isn't Jesus himself. And so what I think it all boils down to is a question of faith. We saw great faith through Joseph and Mary because they have a great and faithful God. They're people like us. They could have faltered, but God empowered them. They get to become people that we can live up to, but ultimately it points us to the one who is faithful enough to make good on their act of trust that they did. Do your truest trust, faithfulness, and intentions, do they lead to God or does it lead to something else? Is it in our ability to make things that we want, that we always want to run to? I heard a pastor earlier um, this week say it like this. You know where your faith is because when confrontation or conflict arises, it's the first thing you reach for. And so what do you reach for? What do you reach for to solve your problems? What do you go to and what do you place your faith in? And so my prayer for us today as we head out is to compel us 
right? I, I, as I was prepping this, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm like the biggest bummer during the Advent season right now. Like, I just come in, but, but we got some serious things, and I thought to myself, how, how am I going to, I'm weighing these two worlds, like, I don't want to push against almost this um, denial sense of merriness during the season, when the actual story of God tells us that there are dark things and how we should handle those things, how there's hope in it. In, in fact, the Scriptures in Isaiah says a light shines in the darkness, And so we come to this now, and here's my prayer. May we be a people who take the risk, because it is a risk, of loving God and loving others to establish a new kingdom on earth. To trust God's word and what he says to us, to believe that he is telling a different story than maybe what G.I. Joe told you when you grew up or whatever it was that you watched as you grew up. And that this story is how we are to live, and it is good news. That we put our trust in the natural and the supernatural hand of God and to become familiar with leaning on it instead of our own means. And that ultimately we trust the nonviolent inclinations of God and to reject a culture of retaliation, to reject a culture of domination and violence, and instead become familiar, refamiliarized with the and embrace of with the love, the peacemaking orientation of our resources the neighborliness that God gives us to love one another and to meet each other's needs when they can't meet them of their self. It's very simple. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. And so it's easier to proclaim it. It's easier to receive it. It's easier to agree with it. It's so much harder to do it and to live it, right? So that's why we need to pray for each other right now. Let's do that together as the band comes up and we get a chance to sing and respond in all the different ways that we respond. But let's start right now with prayer first. And so, Lord, we come to you um, as, as, as we enter into a season of, of joy. And there will be time for joy. We'll come right back to that next week, God. But before we get to joy, sometimes we have to understand how deep the valleys go. And so as some of us are maybe navigating different seasons in our own life, that this is meeting you where you're at, you're in a valley and you needed to hear that there is hope and light in the midst of that darkness. God, just saturate that person with light today. Maybe for some of us, we've been floating on a cloud uh, of joy that allows us to uh, maybe insulate from some of the darkness. And so God, let us understand what that darkness is. Challenge us not to run away from it, but to run to it. Uh, But ultimately, God, we can only find our actual uh, antidote in you. Help us to be sacrificial. Whether it's two siblings fighting in my household yesterday or two brothers fighting on the street, threatening each other with death, intervene. Help us to swallow our pride and to put down any uh, rules of engagement that don't align with who you are. Saturate us with love, God. Saturate us with love, God, and let us saturate the streets and the neighborhoods that we're in, Father. And for those who have lost those, God, Ariel's family, I pray for them right now, God. For Anthony and those who are like him doing ministry similar to this, God, anoint them, empower them, allow them um, to be an agent of diffusion, to be an agent of de-escalation when those tempers rise up, when those competitions rise up, to meet people in the middle of that mess takes a special person. So God, just 
build Anthony up in that, Father. And we ask for all of these things and agree as a congregation together in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen.